0: Welcome once more to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker, a pastor in Maidenbauer Baptist Church in Crawley in the United Kingdom. As we work our way through these sermons by the Victorian pastor preacher Charles Spurgeon, and we've reached this week Sermon 600. Each week we read through a particular selection. This week it's 598 to 604 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit series and each week we identify a featured sermon, something that gives us a particular insight into Spurgeon's ministry, holding up and holding out Jesus Christ as the alone Saviour of sinners. We can be found on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up for a weekly newsletter at mediagratii.org podcasts, and there you'll get not only the, the week's reading, but also a PDF of our featured sermon. This week it is The Centurion, or An Exhortation to the Virtuous, preached by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington, but this one undated. The text is Luke 7, verses 4 to 9. It's about the centurion, the the Roman soldier, who was a, a worthy man to receive some blessing in the estimation of those who sought out the Lord Jesus. And before he'd got to the house where the centurion was waiting with his sick servant the centurion sent friends to him saying Lord do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof therefore I did not think myself worthy to come to you but just say the word and my servant shall be healed and he goes on to express furthermore his great faith in Jesus Christ Now, Spurgeon spends a lot of time in his sermons emphasizing the freeness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He calls sinners of all stripes to repent of their sins and to come to Jesus Christ in faith in order that they may be saved. Now, the centurion gives him an opportunity to address a slightly different class of sinner. Now, by class, I'm not talking about social class, but more spiritual class or category, a different kind of person who may have different battles and challenges, different obstacles in coming to Jesus Christ. Spurgeon begins by reminding us that this centurion had a high reputation. Two features of character blend in him which do not often meet in such graceful harmony. He won the high opinion of others and yet held a low opinion of himself. The preacher reminds us there are some who think little of themselves and they're quite correct in their feelings as all the world would endorse the estimate of their littleness. Others think great things of themselves but the more they're known the less they're praised and the higher they shall carry their heads the more the world laughs them to scorn. Nor is it unusual for men to think great things of themselves because the world commends or flatters them and they get puffed up with pride and cloaked with vanity. But there's a happy combination here. The elders say of the centurion that he is worthy the centurion says of himself that he is not and that helps then Spurgeon when he thinks about these men pleading his merit but he himself pleading his demerit. that what you've got here is a high character and a deep humility and a mighty faith And Spurgeon's going to use those three elements the high character the deep humility and the mighty faith to encourage a certain kind of person to come to Jesus Christ. To begin then, dear friends, here is a high character. We should thoroughly appreciate it and give it a full measure of commendation. It's interesting how Spurgeon begins this particular section, the first of his three points, because he says that when he preaches Jesus Christ to the chief of sinners, we have sometimes half dreamed that some who are moral and upright might actually think themselves excluded. They ought not to think so, nor is it fair for them to draw such an inference. But here's the wise pastor thinking, if I'm always saying Christ has come for gross sinners, could some who are not outwardly so vile, conclude that there is no Christ for them. This is the kind of the lie that the the devil might speak to someone. We've heard the whisper, he says, of some who have said they could almost wish that they'd been more abandoned and dissolute in the days of their unregeneracy, that they might have a deeper repentance and be witnesses of a more palpable and thorough change so that they might never have cause to doubt of the triumph of grace in their experience. Now, I've, I've actually heard, especially children who've been brought up in Christian homes, speak like that. So Spurgeon isn't just weaving something out of the air. I've known people who've said, in effect, I wish I'd been really bad, and that way I'd know if I'd been really saved, that if I hadn't had some of those common grace restraints upon me if I hadn't had godly parents perhaps who held me back from excess if I hadn't been under the sound of the gospel and in a well-regulated home then I might have lived in such a way that if God was at work in me at least I would have seen it and known it it's a real danger I think that we need to be aware of and that's why this is a helpful sermon Spurgeon wants us to realize that that sin really is sin, and the penitence of contrite believers is not regulated by the extent of their crimes against the so-called moral code. One sin of unbelief is such a concentration of all wickedness that it could outweigh the crimes of Sodom and Gomorrah and make them more excusable in the day of judgment than the men of Capernaum who saw the mighty works of Christ and did not repent. That one sin of unbelief is so heinous that the groans of the whole creation were but pitiful sighs to deplore it, and rivers of tears were but a weak tribute to lament it. But, he says, mistakes do arise, misapprehensions do take place. So let's have a few words concerning a high character in the sight of men, and that's a really important qualification that we need to pick up again at the end of this particular section. Now, Such a character among your fellow creatures may be gained in any situation. Any man may gain a high opinion in the eyes of other men, even this centurion, even a Roman soldier in Judea. Spurgeon says, wherever you're placed, you can earn a noble character. You may serve God in the most menial capacity, and you may compel your very foes to own your excellence. You may stand so unblameably before men, and may walk so uprightly before God, that those who watch for your halting may bite their lips with disappointment, while they have not a single word to say against you, except it be touching the religion of your God and King. So this centurion must have been something special, says Spurgeon, not merely quiet and inoffensive, "'a man as insipid as he was harmless, but a truly high character. "'His private temperament, as well as his public spirit, "'contribute to the estimation in which he was held. "'Then there was his generosity. "'It was not by occasional showy deeds, "'but rather by the habitual practice of attractive virtues "'that a worthy character was built up and can be by us. "'And so the Christian should be liberal in his actions, "'benevolent in all his thoughts.' We should rather be willing to be thought of as a soft touch than than to be thought of as a a hard case. Better, says Spurgeon, to be blamed for an excess of generosity than take credit to himself for a rigid parsimony. So a high character then is a blessing. It's, It's not stooping or cringing or lying to win friends. That's something we should scorn to do. But, he says, if with uprightness before God, you can still mingle such affection and such generosity toward men that you shall win their approval, then by all means do it. And that's what this centurion had done. He had lived, he had conducted himself in such a way that even those who might have been considered his enemies spoke highly of him. But, and here's that qualification we mentioned, however good your character... However excellent your repute, not one word of this is ever to be mentioned before the throne of the Most High. We do not plead our merits with men before the throne of God. There, regardless of how men esteem us or do not, all of us are levelled. Each one needs the cleansing blood as much as the other. And while it may be that a good reputation, a good name is desirable among men on a number of different levels, let us never imagine that a good reputation wins our way into heaven. No, it is always nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And so that brings us to the second thing, that the centurion not only had this high and noble reputation, but he also had deep humiliation of soul. He said, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. And so, as a good reputation can appear in any condition, so may humility exist in any condition. Some men are too mean, too too low, too uh, slimy to be humble. They're too crouching, crawling, sneakish and abject to be humble. They're only playing the part. They they don't have any dignity in their humanity. They don't have any real sense of of their own worthlessness. Spurgeon says, We've heard of a certain monk who, professing to be humble, said he'd broken all God's commandments, that he was the greatest sinner in the world. He was as bad as Judas. Somebody replied, ''Why tell us that? We've all thought of that a long time ago.'' Straight away the holy man grew red in the face and smote the accuser and asked him what he'd ever done to deserve such a speech. You see the problem. People are happy to be thought-humble, happy to profess humility, but take them at their word and they get angry. It's not humility. It's a kind of mock modesty which hankers after applause and holds out specious words as a bait for the trap of approbation.'' It's the person who says, oh, I'm no good at this, or, oh, I've got nothing to offer. And what they want is someone to say, oh, no, you're wonderful at it. You're so good at these things. You're you're really valuable to us. Spurgeon says that's not humility. That's just fishing for compliments. True humility, though, comports with it. It walks with the highest chivalry in maintaining divine truth and the boldest assertion of what one knows in his own conscience to be true. Though it may be the lot of Christians to be thought proud, let it never be true or capable of being substantiated concerning them. So humility is not uncertainty, it's not crawling, it's a, a becoming modesty, it's an awareness of our sinfulness and our emptiness, even while we hold to the truth with dignified conviction. Like Athanasius standing against the world while it seemed to be proud, It was nevertheless true humility before God. And so the centurion, though worthy before men, was still humble in himself. And Spurgeon says you don't need to tell people that you're humble. Those books on humility that are written by men who spend the first three pages in the introduction telling you why they are so humble. You've got no occasion to advertise that you have genuine humility. Let it discover itself as spice does by its perfume or as fire by its burning. If you leave near to God and if your humility is of the right kind, it will tell its own tale before long. The true man then whom God approves will not and dares not swerve for the love he bears his sovereign Lord when he faces men. But when he is alone with his maker, he veils his face with something better than the wings of angels. This then is not a performed humility or a merely professed humility. Walking before men, we can walk in righteousness, we can hold fast to the truth, we can keep our course, but with God we come very, very low. So then, there's this combination, the high character which the Christian should maintain among men, and the blending of that with true humility which comes from the Spirit of God and which ever becomes us in the presence of the Lord. And that brings us then To the most practical point, the third one, that however deep our humility and however conscious we may be of our own undeservingness, we should never diminish our faith in God. It is not our worthiness one way or the other that somehow wins or prevents the blessing. It is faith in God that obtains mercy. It is all a mistake that great faith implies pride. The greater faith, says Spurgeon, the deeper humility. Faith and and humility are brothers, not foes. The more the glories of God strike your eyes, the humbler you will lie in conscious abasement, but the higher you will rise in importunate prayer. So he says let's take the principle and endeavour to apply it to a few cases. Let's see how this deep sense of our own nothingness does not prevent our having strong faith. Here's his first example. A minister who's been preaching the word of God. And perhaps he's thinking of himself. He has so proclaimed that truth that God has been pleased to own it in some degree. Perhaps he's caused something of a ruckus. And now he comes before God and he's asking that a greater blessing than ever may rest upon his labours. But he remembers his infirmities. He remembers how slack he is in his private devotions. How cold he is in pleading with the sons of men conscious that he doesn't deserve the honour of being useful, he is afraid to ask for a blessing. Spurgeon says, remember the centurion, it's right for us to say, Lord I'm not worthy to be made the spiritual parent of one immortal soul. It's right for us to feel that it's too great an honour to be permitted to preach the truth at all, an almost too high a thing for such a sinner to have any jewels to present to the Redeemer to fix in his crown. But, oh, we must not from this infer that God will not fulfill his promise to us and hear our prayer. Lord, speak in a word, and feeble though the instrument may be, the congregation shall be blessed. Say but the word, and the marvellous testimony, though marred with a thousand imperfections, shall yet be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, it is not our weakness that determines God's strength. It is not our unworthiness that regulates God's blessing. Rather, it is the fact that God is God and we come to him in our weakness, in our foolishness, in our need. We confess it. We know that we need him, but that should not stop us asking for this mercy. Or what about some brother or sister in a similar perplexity of mind? They have family that they want to see saved and they know they don't deserve a mercy. Who can ever deserve a mercy, says Spurgeon? Don't let your foolishness, don't let your uh, sins, don't let your failings stop you from believing God. No matter what a fool you may be, God has confounded wise things by the foolish long before now. No matter how weak you are, God has brought down the mighty by weak instrumentalities often enough before this time. Confess your worthlessness. Acknowledge your emptiness by all means, says Spurgeon, but trust in the God of mercy and of grace. Or what about a parent praying for their children, or a husband pleading for a wife, or a wife making intercession for her husband? God only knows what heart-rending prayers are often heard in families where only a part is saved. And again, we know that we have no grounds to demand a blessing from God. In one sense, we have nothing to claim. And yet we come because we come to a Father who is ready to bless the needy. We come pleading the merits of Jesus Christ. We come depending upon the blood of Christ for its plea and upon the intercession of Christ for the prevalence of our prayers. We are full of ingratitude. We are full of iniquity. We deserve no good thing. But our ill-deserving never stopped God's blessing. Someone else says, I- I've prayed so long. Ah, brother, don't limit the Holy One of Israel. Don't let your doubts prevail. Angels fly at the bidding of God. At his presence the rocks melt and the hills dissolve. Sinai is to- altogether on a smoke. And when he comes forth dressed in the robes of salvation, there are no impossibilities with him. He can win and conquer to your heart's best desire. Therefore be humble by all means, but be not unbelieving. And then he turns it, he applies it in another direction. Concerning yourselves, friends, what are the mercies which you want? Not so much what you desire for others, but what about you yourself? If you could write down your own distinctive prayer, what a variety we would have. But Spurgeon says, Whatever your desire may be, only believe and it shall be granted unto you if it be a desire in accordance with God's will and in accordance with the promises of his word or else God's word is not true. Be humble about your need but do not be doubtful about your need or God's willingness to meet it. And particularly, says Spurgeon, the unsaved soul who is here tonight. A man, a woman, perhaps a boy or a girl, whose character has been morally admirable. Nobody finds any fault with you, and as I said before, you almost wish you could. they could, for you cannot feel, as some do, the terrors of the Lord. Your heart is not broken with conviction as the hearts of some are, but there is this desire in it, Lord, save me or I perish. Is that describing you perhaps this evening? Is that your testimony? Maybe you've been brought up in a godly home. Maybe you've lived in some respects what the world would call a good life. And yet you know that you are a sinner. And you know that you need this Saviour. So, says Spurgeon, dear friend, it is well that you should feel there is nothing in you to commend you to Christ. I'm glad that you feel this. Though before the eyes of men and even perhaps your own parents, there is nothing which can cause you a blush, I am glad that you feel that before God you have nothing whatever to boast of. You might have a legitimately good reputation before men, but do you realise that you still need a saviour? Again, here is Spurgeon's point, here is uh, Spurgeon's emphasis. I think I see you now. You're saying... I don't trust my church going, my chapel going. I'm not going to give up attendance at the means of grace, but I, I can't rely upon it. My baptism, my confirmation, taking the sacrament, all this has nothing in it to save my soul. And though I love God's ordinances, I cannot trust in them. I've fed the poor. I've taught the ignorant. You, you can almost hear him racking up the things that he knows are in themselves worthy of honour among men but he knows he has nothing in which to glory these good works and it's back to that early distinction these good works though they may win the the applause and the praise of men they weigh nothing in the scales of salvation they do not merit God's pleasure doubt not then but now trusting thyself with Jesus, remember you are saved if you come to him and put yourself in his hands. No mountains of sin, no height of vileness can shut a man out of heaven if he believes in Jesus. And just now we are after you. Without the strong convictions, without the terrors of conscience, without a sense of any aggravated crimes, if you rest on Jesus, you are saved. You don't have to be a great, gross, outward sinner. You are a sinner, and Christ will save you on his own terms. Yes, says Spurgeon, we rejoice over the chief of sinners. We make the place ring when the prodigal comes in. But, elder brother, why will not you come in? You who have not been standing all the day idle in the market, but only the first hour, don't say no man has hired you. You come in that the house of mercy may be filled. Here's a wonderful example then of Spurgeon's sensitivity and versatility, not just as a pastor, but as a pastor evangelist. He knows his congregation. He's concerned that there may be some here who will have these uh, almost twisted thoughts about their own emptiness and uh, worried about their uh, outward excellence and uh, turning it all somehow into into a bit of a muddle and yet he is winning them, he's pleading with them, he's going after them, he's trying to root out every, uh, from every refuge those who need a saviour. And he's speaking now to those who perhaps, uh, and you may be listening to him down through the centuries, he's speaking to those of us who may say, Lord, I know that though I may be impressive in the eyes of men, I am nothing in the eyes of God, though I've earned a reputation horizontally, yet still I know that in the, the vertical relationship with the God of heaven, I am in need of mercy. And Spurgeon says, if you are humbled on account of your sin, don't let that now stop you going to God. He is the God that you need, his son, the saviour, who is held out to you, his mercy All the blessing you might require, his grace extended in Christ towards sinners of every kind, every man, every woman, every boy or girl, whatever may be their outward reputation, is in need of Jesus Christ to make them clean and they have then in him just the saviour that they need. So let us take comfort from this. Whatever kind of a, a sinner we may be in the eyes of men, whatever kind of a good person we may be in the eyes of men. If we know our own need, if we know that we need salvation, then we can come with confidence to a God of whom, to whom rather we can say, Lord, I'm not worthy, but I do trust in you. I do put my faith in your son and I do believe that you can save a sinner like me. And may there then be multitudes of us who recognise not that we were or needed to go as far as some others have gone, but that we went plenty far enough in our own depravity to need a Saviour like Jesus Christ. And let us who have been so saved love our Saviour none the less, because in the eyes of the world we've not been uh, lifted up from so far down and we haven't needed to go so high. We know it. We know what we've been saved from, and we need to know what we've been saved to, and give thanks then to the God of our salvation. May he help us to do it, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Thank you for listening, and I trust you'll join us again on another occasion. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon, with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app.